drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, I'm your robot podcast host, Rick. And here, rousing from his hypersleep, is the crewman, Paul. <laughs> uh, how many minutes before this podcast begins? Well, we're 90 years away from the start of the 90 podcast. 90 years away. That's a large number of minutes. It is. This is, is. episode 36, 36 of Drive-By Cinema. Welcome to Richard, who my, is my co-host, and myself, who isn't my co-host. This episode will be discussing the movie Passengers. But Passengers. Paul, yes. I do have a question for you. Oh, God. Now, before we did this, in the contact meeting, you said, look, we've got nothing to talk about this. We're going to launch straight into the movie. And now you lay this upon me, Richard. What is it all about? What are you going to ask me? That was before you revealed that you were sucking on a fisherman's friend. And you... you... <laughs> it's what we all do behind the trawlers here. <laughs> it's... Look, they've got the boardwalk... In uh, in in wherever it is in New Newark, and they've got the promenade and uh, the pier in Blackpool, but we have to do it behind trawlers here in here in Fleetwood. You said it was making your wine taste funny. It was. It is rather, and it probably will still be. Let me just try. Oh hell yeah, that's not pleasant now. Now listen, in I think it was the last episode you told a story. And I let a lot of the details of that story by me during the actual recording. But now you've got problems with it. But now I've come back to it and I've got some questions. So the story goes that your mum had taken you and your sister to the cinema and she left you in one auditorium watching, I think you said, yes! King, I think you said King it Kong. It was King Kong. I think, I'm pretty sure it was King Kong. She went to see whichever of the Travolta and... Newton John movies was out that year. Now you said that this was well, it came about because it was nineteen seventy seven was Suspiria, the year that Suspiria was released. Ah, and it wasn't, was it not? Okay. Well, this is my problem, Paul, because when I looked into this, it turns out When was King Kong released? Seventy eight. Ah. King Kong was released in nineteen seventy six. This is the Dino no way! The Dino De Laurentiis reshoot of King Kong. Yeah, on the twenty sixth of December in the UK. So a highly plausible time where you might be taking both your kids out to a cinema outing. But the other two movies you mentioned, Greece, wasn't released yeah. until nineteen seventy eight. Was it not? And Saturday Night Fever was released in nineteen seventy seven, but only uh. in the US. In the UK, it wasn't released until March nineteen seventy eight. Wow. So it's basically a year between King Kong and Saturday Night Fever, which was the first one. So what was your mum going to see? Or was King Kong still on in the cinema a year later? And Unlikely. But... By the way, 1978, too early for a multiplex cinema. Not multiplex. No, just, just... a four screen. Yeah, a four screen or six screen. I remember because they used to have the numbers in, in plastic, in sort of uh, cut out plastic uh, little, little, little signs. Right. Okay. You know, you know how BBC One, BBC Two used to be with their idents, kind of like, like that, very, very smudgy, friendly, squidgy number signs. But it seems unlikely that a cinema which has maybe four screens, maybe six, but I think that was very rare. 
would have King Kong on a year after it was first released. Especially since, I think King Kong, the Dino De Laurentiis 1976 version, is widely regarded as a piece of trash. <laughs> Isn't it? Okay. So, I'm thinking now. I mean, I, I know in terms of my memory that it was a John Travolta movie, a John Travolta Newton John movie that my mum was going to watch. And I know she left it in the other one to go and watch it. <laughs> also, King Kong is terrifying. There's no way. How old would you have been in 19... Let's, in the best, the best possible scenario is, is 1978. You would have been six years old. <laughs> yeah. And you're telling us that your mum left you in the terrifying King Kong movie auditorium <laughs> with, with your sister, who's the same age, well, is she not? Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I do remember somebody came running around in a gorilla suit and terrified the life out of me. <laughs> in, in the interval. You know, in the interval, they used to sell, they used to sell uh, ah, yes. ice creams. Well, they used to hang yes. a tray off people's necks so they couldn't move and get changed and then insistently walk around trying to sell things off this tray that they couldn't access. Yeah, little tubs of ice cream. Yeah, that. but they had to shine a torch with one hand, <laughs> hold the tray with the other, and then get your change and give you the ice cream with what with with alien hands. I don't know. It's so cruel that they did that to these. But the intervals—that's so amazing, isn't it? That they stopped the film partway through to sell. Ice cream and... But wait, wait, wait. Not until somebody had risen godlike on an organ and played a tune. Oh, well, and that's... Then, and then lowered themselves down again. Not every cinema had that, you know. In well, it had it, it had it whenever I was watching this, you know, this nonsense. So, so I'm thinking now, maybe it was Superman. or No, I know what it was. It was Spider-Man. It was Spider-Man. King Kong we did watch, but later, I think, or earlier. I can't remember. Spider-Man. Well, mm. that, I'll have to go scurry away and do more research now, won't I? You can it's, press pause if you want to. It's an interesting thing, though, because I always have this memory of seeing Star Wars in the cinema. But you didn't. Well, it was released in 1977. I would have been five. Yeah. That's quite young. It's PG, though. So, I mean, you, you can... It's plausible, but I... I think I was. Or is it you? I think I might have been too young to go and see it at that age. No, 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 no. I think that there was as we were as we were uh, looking at the Manchester Skeptics. Sorry, the Skeptics. Uh, the BBFC related talk. BBS Twitch Twitch talk. Yeah, uh, the the categorizations have changed a lot, and I think there was a twelve PG, wasn't there? Either you're twelve or you have parental guidance, and it could have been one of those. I don't think PG existed. No, it didn't. But it's not. It's not the certification. I just don't think. My mum would probably have taken me to the cinema to see Star Wars, which is a bit really? high concept at five. So how is your false memory come about then? Well, this is it. But here's what I do think might have happened. I think that three years later, when they ah. released Empire Strikes Back, I think I may have seen a double bill of Star yes. Wars and the Empire Because, of course, Back. VHS wasn't a thing and Beatsmarks wasn't a thing then. No. So they would re-release the original, wouldn't they? They would, exactly. Yeah. So I have very clear memories of seeing... I think I think it had more than one interval, and it was a big thing. It was a big event, and I'm fairly certain that's what must have, it must have been. That surely, probably in Walkden or Swinton, where the, the big cinema was. I mean, I, I know some video, movie memories are not false memories. I remember going to watch ET. I remember distinctly because I was trying not to let my mates see that I was crying at the end. <laughs> <laughs> it was so embarrassing. 
I don't know why it made me cry, but it did do. Oh, it's a soppy film, isn't it? I know, but I was like 12 years old or something, you know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have cried at it. I felt really bad about crying about it. I still do, actually. All of this, though, is not what I wanted to ask you about that story. Interesting, oh, though, it oh, was. Okay. The real thing was, the, the very brief preamble to that story was, and my father said, I'm going to the gun shop. Oh, right. The gun shop, Paul. Yeah. Now, okay, I know our US listeners, of which we have a modest number, probably thinking, yeah, so what, at this point. Here's the thing. In the UK, I have only ever seen one gun shop in my entire life. No way. True fact. And even, you know, that was a thing to be remarked upon. It, I believe, I'm not sure it's still there, but it used to be on Withy Grove in Manchester City Centre. You just don't have gun shops in this country. Where was the gun shop your father was going to see, Paul? Where was it? What do you mean you have gun shops in this country? Of course you do. I've never seen, except that one, I've never seen a gun shop. Don't know what they look like. Wow. Uh, Well, can I just interrupt to say, I think it definitely was Spider-Man from 1977. It was made for television, but outside the US it had a theatrical release. And I think it was that was the movie that she 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 left us in <laughs> while she went to watch Olivia Newton John or whatnot. Amazing. But uh, yeah. And so uh I think therefore King Kong we must have watched with my parents or one of my parents. As you were saying, because it is a fairly terrifying movie. Whereas Spider Man isn't a terrifying movie. So to get back onto so the gun shop was near the movie theatre, obviously, in Preston. Preston it had a gun shop. Yeah. Yes. I think it still does. Did your father own guns? Was that a thing that he did? just had guns did he he did yeah he owned quite a, a quite large array of guns actually you know the baby stuff bb guns and the air pistols and the air rifles but then he had two handguns and two two uh shotguns quite an expensive one smith and wesson i think what did he do with them what did my father do with his guns i don't know shot rats with them <laughs> i think his brother has Three large farms now, so I guess... Right. So he had somewhere to go and shoot them. Yeah. If, if your hobby is shooting rats, I guess that's what he did. Hey, I think we should play the music and oh, talk God, about yeah. passengers. What passengers, yes. Let's do that. All right, Paul. So, passengers. Mm-hmm. Chris Pratt. is famous. He plays a guy called Nick, I think. Nick Preston. He does play Nick, yeah. In this movie. Here's the story of Passengers. And I think we have to go through the story, go through the plot, before we get into the rather difficult philosophical issues that Passengers raise. For some people. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, I was quite happy to go on my Club 1830 holiday to the stars. <laughs> well, this is what's happening. Nick Preston is an engineer. He lives in a future where humanity is colonising extrasolar planets. We didn't really get the backstory to that, did we? Because like in previous movies, we had like everybody's starving. We need to get out of here. Mm. Or the Earth is True. collapsing. We need to get out of here. You know, Let's get to Jupiter kind of thing. But we didn't really get that, did we? But it stands to reason, doesn't it? If we want to ensure or improve the chances of humanity surviving a major catastrophe. We have to colonise other worlds, don't we? Because a meteorite is going to hit one of them sooner or later, wipe everybody out. If you're on two planets, you've doubled your chances of surviving. True. So it seems like a sensible extrapolation. 
of the kind you do with all my arguments, for instance. I'll take that as a, as a, as a warm chuckle and not a snide aside. Go on, Richard. Yeah. So they're on. They're they're not on expedition. They're on a colonization. Mission? I think we have to assume that someone has explored the planet they're going to already and decided it's suitable, because at this point they're on a giant ship taking five thousand colonists along with a couple of hundred crew look after the ship, and the idea is that it's a one-way trip. They all go there. Now, they're going to have to spend most of the journey in hibernation or hypersleep or something. They need to be in stasis because it's going to take 120 years to reach the star, the planet they're going to. And it's going to travel at about half the speed of light, they say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's anything up to 60 light years away, maybe a bit further. So we've got Chris Pratt. And Jennifer Lawrence, so two big stars in this movie. So you can't. She's a journalist, yeah. Well, we didn't really find that until she plot spoiler wakes up in the middle of the movie. So the scheme is that all of these five thousand people spend one hundred and twenty years, or nearly, asleep on their voyage. In the last four months before they arrive at their destination, they are all woken up, and they spend those four months like on a luxury cruise liner with swimming pools and stuff, but they're also going to classes to learn how they're going to survive on the new planet. Wow. So it's kind of a bit of work, a bit of pleasure. There's cinemas, there's presumably some... There's some kind of restaurant with a robot machine that can serve food. They've all got Disney-style wristbands, haven't they? Yeah. So it's a bit like full access at the water park with your wristbands and, you know, to all the rides, plus, you know, a future version of the Titanic, plus... Some structured job seekers allowance activities. Well, there seems to be different ways of getting on board this ship. Mm. So the journalist has got a first-class ticket, basically. That gives her the best kinds of food at the robo-chef in the canteen. Whereas Nick, Chris Pratt's character, he seems to have got... I think he's bought passage or got passage by agreeing to work when he or gets be an there. engineer. Or perhaps he's got a special profession that they need on board these planets. So it's a 60-light-year trip. You know, if they wanted to turn around 20 years in, uh, they're going at half light speed. It would take a long time to slow it down and speed it back up. There's no real going back once they're 20 years in, is there? Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. So the last thing you want, yeah, well, the last thing you want is to, like, you know, is to be on that and then to wake up early in you from your cryo sleep kind of thing. Yeah. That's right. That would be a bit of a ball ache, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, then, it's a shame that this ship encounters patch of rocks oh is that what happens in space yeah it's an asteroid field as they like to depict in movies and this is our first well one of several science black marks isn't it against this film because first of all rocks don't really just hang around in space like they may orbit something in a gravitational orbit but they don't just hang there you know waiting for things to happen the other thing is, if they were going at 0.5 times the speed of light, mm. it wouldn't work out the way it does in the movie, where you see the rocks going towards the ship, <laughs> and you see the electric shield at, front, at the front of the ship trying and failing to deflect them, and then them slowly crashing through parts of the ship and causing damage. At 0.5 times the speed of light, you wouldn't see the rocks, would you? They would just hit the ship, and a, a shower of atoms would be the consequence. There'd be no ship and no rock, 
after they'd collided. The only way what we saw happening could have happened is if the rocks happened to be travelling in the same direction at nearly 0.5 times the speed of light, but not quite. I see. So that they, they just overtake it quite, you know, like like two cars on a motorway. I missed all that. That's the reason why he that's the reason why people wake up early is because they crash through some rocks. That's right, yeah. So these rocks hit the ship, which was outfitted with some kind of shield to protect it from interstellar dust and atoms and things, because yeah. space isn't completely empty. It's just very, 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 very empty. But of course, these rocks are way too big for the shield, and they hit parts of the ship, and this causes a malfunction. And the consequence initially of the malfunction is... Chris Pratt, amongst all of the 5,250 people on the ship, wakes up. Oh. And he finds himself emerging from his little sleep hibernation pod. All of the normal systems are tripping off. So he's welcomed awake by some kind of hologram. Now, you see, as he woke up, I was expecting, like in other movies, to like to puke up like lots of blue gelatinous stuff from his lungs. But that didn't mm. happen. Yeah. Like he was in the womb, kind of. Yeah, thing. but it didn't happen. No, he was just really in a kind of fancy bed with a lid, wasn't he? Yes, in, in a pair of space pajamas. He's a bit groggy anyway, except there wasn't for you know a bit woozy for a couple of hours or a couple of days or whatever. And he walks around the ship and realizes after a few moments that it's completely deserted and everyone else is still asleep. And he's a bit puzzled by this. Maybe something's gone wrong. Is there some reason why he's been woken up early? He doesn't know. He knocks around, he does a few light-hearted things on the ship. It's got a robot barman, Michael Sheen, isn't it? The the British actor? Yeah. At some point, he goes to some kind of stellar cartography room, not sure what it is, like um, an astronomy thing, and he asks it how long he's got to go before the end of the journey, and it tells him, to his great annoyance, 90 years. Is it 90 years? Wow. 90 years, yeah. So he's thinking, well, I'll be dead by the time we get there. That's right. It looks like he's going to spend the rest of his life living on board this luxury liner, eating porridge and tofu all alone. Has he discovered the android bartender at this point? I think he has, yes. He certainly does. There's company at least, isn't there? It is company, and it's quite a sophisticated android, isn't it? It's presumably limited. I'm sure you'd get to know it rather quickly. You'd run. I mean, it'd be like speaking to... Siri or Alexa, wouldn't it? You'd quickly tire of its <laughs> of its conversational skills. But I mean, Siri and Alexa—they're not meant to conversate, are they? Well, you can have a conversation with them. Why not? Have you never tried it? No, I've tried it with the uh, with the Microsoft bot that comes on Skype. Cortana. No, that's just, that's like that's the same as uh, as Alexa. Though there's a specific bot that's a chat bot that you. Supposed to reproduce chatty conversations, and how how is it? It's interesting. I mean, inevitably, I, I try to become sexually suggestive toward her. <laughs> and how did it I respond? <laughs> with a significant amount of a front, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's very realistic, then. Yeah. So, uh, but also it, it it does like a line and kind of like very up to date sassy put downs and stuff like that. Oh, if, right. you, if you ask it the question one too many times, 
that it doesn't want to answer cancer. What's it called? You don't know. I don't. I don't remember. It was. It was the launch. I don't know about three or four years ago. You're very sure this was a robot you were talking to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> minimum minimum hours worker somewhere <laughs> responding to to Paul. <laughs> that would be good. That's like the the inverse Turing test, you know. Can you can you can you convince somebody that you're a robot when you're not? <laughs> Getting back to Nick, Chris Pratt on board his spaceship. Yeah, he gets bored pretty quickly. He goes downhill very quickly, stops shaving and all that kind of crap. He's drinking too much. It's obviously in the course of the movie that we're watching, but yeah, it's about, two it's years, about a year. Oh, it's a about year. a year he spends. I would tell that's going downhill pretty quickly. He Winds up at a very low ebb, doesn't he? He's done everything he can well, do to entertain himself. He's been exploring, he's been banging on doors, he's been hammering with hammers, nothing. That's right, he tries to get through the security doors to the area where the crew members are kept That's in right, hibernation. Yeah. Yeah. He's no tried look. to send a message home, really an emergency message, saying, you know... It does get sent, but he, he's, he's billed how many credits? Like, you'll have to, he'll have to work for another 20 years to get the message through or something, isn't that right? Yeah, and he's billed 6,000 credit units or whatever it is, yeah. Oh, dear. Whatever they have in the future. And yes, it's going to be unworkably long before there's any response. Well, and presumably the response will be, we're sorry that you're not experiencing the <laughs> the kind of journey you, you expected. Please accept our apologies. Here are vouchers to your next trip. <laughs> well, I mean, he's already, what, 20, 20 light years in or 10 light years in? 30 light years in, mustn't he be? Well, it's, gonna, it's obviously going to take a good few years to get there and back, isn't it? 30 That's years in, sorry. But what do we say about this? Well, he's, he's in a bit of a pickle, isn't he, really? I have to say, I didn't really sympathise with him. I don't think the movie did a good job in, in, in making us feel for him. Oh, like, right. Yeah. That's a shame But then again, because... the acting wasn't great. It was like, oh, you know, let's, so let's have him uh, grow a beard and <laughs> uh, start saying aggressive things towards the, uh, the uh, cy- cybernetic... Uh, bartender I mean he wasn't really convincing wasn't really his descent into depression and anger well he does get depressed and the way they express this he's discovered the recreational spacewalk part of the flight where you can don a spacesuit you can go outside uh, on a tether and tethers are clever because they 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 automatically reattach themselves at various points in the the spacewalk so there are various tethers and they kind of seek you out and suck onto you, kind of thing. So, yeah. I like that. And he's realising that there's no escape from him. He can't get through the security doors to the crew. He can't contact anyone home. It really looks like he's going to die alone here. So, oh, And this is a trigger warning, I suppose. He's, he decides he's going to end it all. And he's building up to going through the airlock where the spacewalk bit is just... Uh, letting himself be ejected into space with no helmet on. And something stops him, something pulls him back. I think he's found already. No, that's right. I think he's he's taken to drinking, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. And he's left a bottle just as he was about to exit the airlock. He comes back in very angry. I think he slips on a bottle that he left. And he happens to find a woman in her hibernation pod. He sees that she's very beautiful. It's Jennifer Lawrence, after all. And he starts learning all that he can about her. He pulls up the files 
where she explains who she is. I think they must all have to do like a video introduction or something. Yeah, so he falls over the ball and discovers Jennifer. Yeah. And so he gets, comes to the decision, should I wake her up or should I try and wake her up, yeah? He's in the horns of a dilemma, isn't he? He's well, he decides that he, he should wake her up. He discusses it with Michael Sheen, doesn't he, the barman. He asks whether or not he should wake her up. The barman think, initially says it's a good idea because he yeah. might be lonely. But then he says, yeah, but he'd be condemning her to death, life on the ship, as it were. And the barman points out that he couldn't possibly do that. It's unconscionable. And here is the problem. There's an ethical dilemma that this film is outlining. Two yeah. things are happening. First of all, he starts off stalking this lady that he doesn't know, got no right to intrude on her private files and so on. And secondly, he's considering taking this decision to wake her up and condemn her to death on board this ship. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? Can this be in any way justified? Do you think his primary motive was sexual or sexual gratification? Or was it rather, I need someone to keep me company? It's very difficult to know, isn't it? Because he's Jimmy Savile. Jimmy Savile would have, you know, decided not to wake her up and just... Kept them all asleep. This is gratify, gratify himself while they're all asleep, kind of thing, you know. So for Jimmy Savile, it wouldn't have been a problem, I don't think. I think, you know, given his necrophilic tendencies, he probably would have enjoyed it if they didn't wake up. But so we're assuming he's not. We're assuming the fact that he does wake her up is the fact that he, you know, he wants to have some sort of companionship, companionship, and therefore feels that she would benefit in some way from being woken up, or he's managed to convince himself. I don't know how he did that. I don't know how he convinced himself that she would want to be woken up. I don't think he ever convinces himself of that, does he? Why does he eventually succeed in waking her up then? Yeah. Here's a charitable interpretation. At the point where he was about to kill himself, yeah. knowing he's got another, you know, 89 years of travel, well, the rest of his life alone, could it not be said that it's better to, you know, do something clearly wrong or clearly criminal rather than kill himself? Is that possibly not something you might advise anyone contemplating suicide? Mm. And, it, you know, before you kill yourself, go out and rob a bank or something, you know. Or is that an extremely irresponsible thing to say? Before you go out and kill yourself, go and rob a bank? Why, but if, when has that ever been advice for anybody, Richard? I realise that it isn't advice. If you're a negotiator, is that the negotiator's handbook? You know, oh, last straw, go and talk to rob a bank. I mean... <laughs> What's all this about? I'm saying that it might be argued, and I'm not, you know, I'm not like a, obviously I'm not a trained counsellor, so I can't speak with any authority on the matter. But it strikes me that if somebody's thinking that there's nothing to live for... You'd go and talk to Robert Bank. Well, it's just an example. But there must, there might be things that people feel inhibited from doing. That if you're at the point where you're going to take your life because your life feels so empty and worthless... Try some of those things that you inhibited from doing, whatever they may be. Standing on a street corner, furiously masturbating. <laughs> if that's what floats your boat, Paul, then yes. No, I would rather just, see... I've, I'd rather I've, see seen, you... I've seen that in various countries. You know, it's like, people just walk past, it's like, oh, right, okay. He's at that moment in his life where he needs to self-validate in that kind of way. Uh, whereas in this country, I think people, the, the police would swoop down and arrest these people, wouldn't they, yeah. But fair enough. Better, better they get arrested than they kill themselves. Is that not? Is that not fair to say? 
<laughs> obviously, though, I realise that it's an idiotic thing to say because I imagine most people who are feeling suicidal are depressed and therefore incapable of doing even the most basic things, let alone, you know, grasping the nettle and doing something completely crazy. Well, I mean, he managed how to he managed he managed to work out how to open these pods and wake people up, didn't he? Yeah, and he's not in that kind of depression, is he? He's taking a he's in a very weird situation and he's taking a rational approach out of it, I think. By choosing the fittest woman he can. <laughs> and you know, on the flip side, when he does wake her up and he's quite charming and romantic and she falls for him. The question obviously then becomes, well, first of all, you might argue the film is immoral in trying to justify his actions, trying to rehabilitate uh, an act which was otherwise unconscionable. And it's a bit like Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? That this woman who has had her agency taken away Mm -hmm. by being forcibly awakened, she winds up falling in love with the person who's done that to her, her captor, effectively. She does, but not when she realises what he's done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the other interesting thing about that is... Only while the, she's hood, hoodwinked does she yeah. feel that way toward him. Yeah, he doesn't come clean with her straight away. He conceals it from her. They have a relationship. So she's thinking that she was awakened accidentally without his intervention. She only discovers it subsequently when the robot barman reveals it, possibly inadvertently, but he told the robot barman not to tell her. But, you know, what can you do? I mean, he's presumably programmed never to lie to the passengers, isn't he? And then, of course, she's extremely upset with him, rightly so, because he's effectively killed her. But look, I mean, presumably, I mean, they're all going to die, right? Everyone on board that ship is going to die. It's one thing about human life. It's 100% terminal. Yeah. For all of the crew, sorry, for all of the people on that ship, their options are either that they're going to live the rest of their lives as pioneers on a frontier planet, eking out an existence, presumably maybe dying young from a space viper biting them or something, or they live the rest of their lives on a luxury cruise liner, you know, with a swimming pool and, you know, luxury accommodation. And maybe that's not such a bad alternative, right? Maybe not. Does that but, re- I mean, rehabilitate them in any way or rehabilitate him in any way? No, of course it doesn't, because, I mean, maybe or maybe not. You know, it's not his decision to... It's not his It's not, It's not. not his right to make that decision for other people, is it? And, of I course, as we discover, but only when she's awake, she reveals that her plan is to go back. So she wasn't intending to stay on the frontier planet. She was going to go back, and what she wants to do is see... Earth in 240 years' time, sort of see the future, which is more fuel for her journalistic and authorial kind of imagination, isn't it? Yeah. That kind of puts the nail in the coffin for what he's done to her, because he's not only... He thought he was removing her future of her frontier life on this new planet, whereas in fact, he's removing a completely different future, which is much more like what she left in the first place. Mm. It's very difficult, but I find that difficult to condemn what he did because it strikes me that what he did was better than him just killing himself. Do you think he should have just lived the rest of his life out on the ship alone? What would you What would you whoa, have done? Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait! You're saying in order not to kill myself, I have to wake up the fittest bird on the on the on the on the, on the rocket ship. 
If, well, look, if you I mean, his conditions. Like a... I mean, you know, if I'm the negotiator here, if I'm the negotiator with his conscience, you know, and he's on the he's on the uh, on the uh, on the on the on the building ledge up above, I'm not letting that pass. You know, he can have KFC and, and fries if he comes down, kind of thing. <laughs> he's not getting the tomahawk steak. You know, if I was the negotiator in this hostage situation in his mind, in his conscience. I would say, you, by all means, wake up the old guy who you don't fancy. He didn't do that, did he? Look, but if you're going to ruin somebody's life, if you're going to ruin somebody's life, it, you might as well choose a hottie, right? I mean, apart from anything else, you're going to need to occupy yourselves in the long, the long dark nights of the journey. That's assuming that, you know, there's, there's, there's some sort of reciprocal scoring going on, you know. She's a nine or ten in his eyes. He's assuming what that he's at least a five in her eyes. And is he? Maybe not. Maybe it's a two or a three. There's oh, some well, big assumptions going on there too. You know, in terms of sexual compatibility, aren't there? That's an interesting observation again, though, isn't it? Maybe she's a, maybe she's not into blokes. One of the things that we've seen on reality TV shows like Big Brother is, despite the fact that they're just picking random people from you know different walks of life in order to put together a good TV show, inevitably a couple of people are going to fall for each other and they're going to have some kind of love affair on screen in that pressure cooker environment of the Big Brother house or wherever it is. Yeah. But then, of course, when they leave the house, they're not, they're not remotely suited to one another and they split up. So I think human That's beings... Like do seem to have, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think human beings must have this pre-wired like, mating instinct that takes over. And if the only other you know, human being available... It, isn't what you'd really want. You kind of make do, don't you? Well, we are a rabidly sexual species, you know. I mean, uh, we have sex like ridiculously, ridiculously often, you know, like averages, what, twice a week? hundred times a year? It's just, it's obscene. You know, most of the animal kingdom have sex, what? Large mammals have sex, what? 10 times, 20 times a year? A couple maximum. of times a year or something? A bit more than that, I think, you know. But, but not very often, most romantic comedy films and stories and stuff express an idea usually of the guy chasing a girl, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's equally unhealthy, right? There's a, an element of coercion and persuasion which seems to be treading the same line. Where does the line between stalking and the line between pursuing someone who's not reciprocating the same feelings, where does that lie? And Why does so much of our romantic literature and stories... Why does it revolve around this idea that the woman usually is the one being pursued and is the goal and the the man has to persuade or deceive, sometimes just plain deceive? Wow. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> really. I mean, what do you want me to say, Richard? The way our literature and stuff is encourages men to stalk, usually men, again. But there's this romantic idea that it's right to chase down the object of your atten- uh, affection, doesn't it? And so, of course, stalking happens. It's what everyone's trained to do. It's what people are told is the way to be romantic. And in this film, it seems just so brutally obvious that it's a bad thing because he's, you know, affecting her agency so much. It's an extreme example, but it's the same class of thing that's happening. I mean, if we go back to other cultures, like in the in the Irish travelling community, typically when when the kids are what. 14, 15, 
they start courting, and courting's highly ritualized. And, and part of it, it's, it's some sort of sort of uh, courtship dance where the boys physically coerce the girls away from the group, kind of thing. It's just in that part of courtship that it happens. But then afterwards, you know, if, if they start going out, and of course. Uh, they have to treat the girls very well. But uh, there is a short time where the boys become physically kind of quite controlled. They kidnap them, basically, don't they? They, they kidnap them, yeah. And within that kidnap, there is some aspect of manhandling also, potentially. Not before or afterwards in any relationship with the girls, it has to be said. I mean, because it's hard to examine our own culture because, it, you know, it, it's... Because it's... fish don't know they're wet, do they? Well, it's not that. It's just, I mean... Our culture has become Hollywood. It's become, it's become this huge economic juggernaut, isn't it? So, I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to talk about native behaviour anymore, is it? Or, you know. mm. now, when this was shown on Channel Four about ten or fifteen years ago, there was widespread condemnation of, of this backward, horrific practice, so to speak. But when we considered, you know, to how how in the mainstream culture in the UK. Women are treated in in nightclubs, yeah, uh, and that kind of thing. It, it, it pales in comparison, really, to, to to the way that they're treated in our own culture. But also, there are very specific points during this courtship dance when the girl can refuse the boy. Hmm. Does that make sense? And can do it without without any consequences. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, yeah, this traditional way of courting is is, although to our eyes it looks in some ways, to be enslaving and tying women into servitude called marriage. In some ways, it does leave them more honoured and freer in a certain sort of way. Like out in the Far East, when at that point where you're saying, is it wanted or wanted, which is the critical thing here, isn't it? Is the attention whatever, of what a, no, nature wanted or unwanted? And if the boy is supposed to pursue, then potentially you're setting the boy up to transgress into unwanted behaviour territory. Often the boy will give a present to the girl at early parts of courtship and her accepting or not accepting the presence is an indication of whether he should continue to pursue. How, how do you not, not accept a present? You say, sorry, I don't want that present. Wow. And you give it back. It takes tremendous self-control. <laughs> but because it's a courtship present, it's indicated the girl's have a right to do that, you see. Yeah. I mean, at this point, she could probably have three or four suitors without being slut-shamed. And so, you know, it, it, she probably wants to keep avenues open, but she really doesn't want the boy to pursue anymore. She just rejects his presence. It doesn't preclude, preclude her from, from accepting presence from other boys, you see. So so in a way, I think we had mechanisms for for, for, for implicitly establishing the boundaries in, in a situation where we expect boys to pursue and to minimise collateral damage, so to speak. But I think in our highly modern, very fast an almost memoryless society, I, I don't think these mechanisms could work, could it? Because the two things I've just described rely on a connection within your community for other people to know what's got on and to somehow maintain a continuous sense of rectitude and for there to be consequences if people don't observe these rules. I, I think in a fast modern society, nobody's watching, essentially, are they? You can, mm. you can get away with murder, so to speak. So in, in, in our society where the the insistence is that boys still pursue and pursue aggressively and our social structures are such big empty things as you know shopping malls or Facebook or or whatever 
uh, or you know the uh, the cattle market is the downtown pub for young people. I mean, there isn't that sense of observed consequence. I mean, there are no shaming eyes mm. for when you do transgress. So inevitably, it's a, it's a lack of consequence. I think that that means uh, with with the priming that boys should be successful in pursuing and need to pursue aggressively and shouldn't give up in what they're doing. You know, I think it's kind of sets people up for failure, as you were saying, doesn't it? Really. That's not to excuse individual circumstances when boys have done things that are offensive. No, quite so. The, this difficult ethical briar patch of a movie tries to resolve itself. It tries to rehabilitate, I think, Nick's character. Because what happens next is that Lawrence Fishburne wakes up. He's one of the crew members. <laughs> and his pod now deactivates. And he helps figure out that, first of all, he clocks quite quickly that Nick woke up. What is uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character called? I'm not telling you. (laughs) Aurora. She's called Aurora. Lawrence Fishburne's crewman character, he wakes up partly because the ship is starting to fall apart. I think it's been another sort of year or so, hasn't it? They've been going through their relationship and falling out, and then they've got a sort of an arrangement where they don't meet each other in the bar anymore. But the ship is falling apart because the damage caused by those meteorites earlier on is having other effects on other parts of this. I mean, this is an amazing spaceship. Obviously, this spaceship has got to do a lot of work, doesn't it? It's got to transport Not that amazing. I mean, the android waiter doesn't know when he's told not to tell her that the other guy woke her up. When she asks something about him, then he reveals to her the fact that he... She was woken up by the other guy. He's not a very clever android, is he? His job is serving drinks for four months, not maintaining a relationship with a, with a human being. For- oh, so I thought he was like the psychoanalyst. I thought he was a therapist, as therapist android that was there as a bartender. That was his, like, you know, social cover, so to speak. <laughs> I'm sure there'd be a he, real he therapist designed- on board oh, in, okay. in the crew, wouldn't there? With you, okay. At this point they have to undertake a daring rescue mission for the ship. Yeah. Lawrence Fishburne's character dies because his hypersleep was malfunctioning and it's caused irreparable harm, and he dies very oh. quickly. They have to undertake this really daring rescue where they control the overheating fusion reactor by <clears throat> venting some gas through a gas vent port. Really for which Now, they have to do a space war to do that, yeah? Yeah, they just know. The door isn't opening, so Nick has to go outside and fix it himself. He's an engineer. You, you know, you know, this time a spacewalk is going to go wrong, and it inevitably does, but not before he shuts down or controls a nuclear vent to nuclear reaction. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, he now, figures out. He, he's right by it. He's, he's stood by the. You know, he's stood by the, the, the vent. It's the only way to do it. You got to go to the door. You got to <laughs> press the button next to the door or twist the. <laughs> out bolt. comes g- nuclear gases, presumably at ten thousand, twenty thousand degrees centigrade. Yeah, now, you'd think right. he would be fried at this point, but he's not fried, amazingly. No, because he figured out before he went out there that he can pull <laughs> an interior door off a closet. Yeah. And that closet door is going to protect him from this venting fusion plasma. Oh, so like a shield is going to protect him. Like a shield, yeah, yeah. But not in front of his legs. No, it's not quite big enough for his whole body. But do his legs survive? His legs do survive, yeah, oddly. Yeah, oh, you'd, well think, you'd think they'd be completely vaporised, along with the door and the rest of him. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Or at least the cable that's holding on there, you know, his little space cable. That would be <laughs> melted, but it's not. Everything's okay. I think, no, the cable does snap eventually, doesn't it? Because he gets ejected out 
and Jennifer Lawrence has to Aurora, sorry, has to catch him. She has to go out there and. Well, that's it. You know, if we're on a long-term space journey in these movies and somebody goes on a spacewalk, one, you know that the cable's going to snap. They're going to float into space. And then you're going to find out that their spacesuit starts leaking. And oftentimes that leak is going to be used to direct their flight back to the spaceship. Is that not right? Is that what No, he doesn't do that. No, No, he he slingshots. I think he slingshots. He throws something. Yeah, he throws something away. The door. Ah. He throws the door away, doesn't he? That was quite clever, I thought, actually. The standard. It's it's absolutely standard, isn't it? He doesn't use his leaky spacesuit to fart his way back to the spaceship. (laughs) He uses the snooker table conservation momentum principles to do it. So well done on that. Well done on understanding basic uh, principles of momentum. And he gets back and everything's hunky-dory. They love each other. They probably kiss and embrace. I don't remember, do they? He was initially unconscious, wasn't he? Because oh. he, he'd been in, in vacuum, and he went unconscious. So she puts him in the in the med bay. Oh, that's thing. right. Now, if you've ever seen Idiocracy, you'll know what we're talking about. It's like you know, in Idiocracy, they have to press what's wrong with them. They have to press the icons that vaguely represent the, the maladies on their body. Well, this is a similar sort of box. It's like an incubator, but giant for humans, not chickens. And it's got little icons that you press. What's wrong with you? Beep, beep, beep. And she presses everything. Yeah. Just, it just gives him every And the machine possible. goes, do you really want to do all the treatment? That's not advisable. And then she says, magic code override, because they've got a magic code override thing. Is that right? Well, they got it off Lawrence Fishburne, didn't they? Yeah, yeah they got the magic code override. Magic code override, and then you think, oh my God, so many things, it's all going to go wrong. He's going to die from, from being over-operated. No. Amazingly, a tense moment, but he comes out okay. Isn't that right? That's right. Oh, lovely. And then we cut to the rest of the crew waking up on schedule. Uh, you know, 90 years later, when they're approaching their destination. We don't see anything, of course, presumably they're dead already. We don't see anything of Nick and Aurora. But whilst, they, whilst they've been living their life together, he had planted a tree on the main deck, hadn't he? He dug up a bit of infrastructure, and he put a tree from the, the hold full of equipment and stuff they needed to colonise the planet with. He planted that tree. So when the the crew and the passengers wake up, they find that the main the main deck is like a a jungle. It's full of different plants and animals that they planted over there. Because presumably they would have to have fed themselves, wouldn't they? Because that electronic cook machine wouldn't have enough food for two people for 90 years when it had only been set up to have food for 5,000 people for four months. I've not done the sums, but at, at any rate... You wouldn't want to eat all the food that was going to be keeping everybody else alive, would you? But that's how it ends. Apparently, oh. they'd made a massive garden in the main deck, and everyone's quite amazed by it all. And maybe, yeah, maybe they had kids that were still living there. We don't know. We don't see them, do we? So, Rich, I think you were hoping to re- resolve some sort of, or or to bring to light some some deep ethical issues here about, you know, stalking. Was he right to wake her up? And I'm sorry not to be able to answer any of those. It's a very difficult film. It asks some really tricky questions, and they're not easy answers. His finding out about her, stalking, if you like, was it egregious? I don't think it was. Was his behaviour waking her up egregious? I don't think it was. It, you know, it, it could be justified as being satisfying very basic needs. We can't really say it was motivated by selfishness as such. If selfishness would be meaningful, as we talk about it, I mean, it was motivated by. A basic instinct of self-preservation, wasn't it? More meaningfully, so, so I don't think it is necessarily a moral dilemma or quandary that we find ourselves in here, is it? Well, this movie was very uh, divisive. 
a lot of people came down one side or the other about this. It was a hit in the box office. I don't know why necessarily because I I find it it's quite slow. This movie it dragged. How did it divide people? You know, some people said that it raised or possibly even glorified these issues about stalking and you know abuse, effectively relationship level abuse. As I say, I think the film tries to rehabilitate him in a rather clumsy way. As we learn, if they hadn't been awake, two of them, they wouldn't have been able to save 5,000 people on the journey. The ship would have been destroyed. It needed two of them to fix it. Yeah. Of course, they weren't to know that. Certainly Nick wasn't to know it when he woke her up. But in the end, it seems to be on the whole a good thing. But it's a clumsy, writerly way of trying to rehabilitate um, an ethically dubious position, isn't it? Hmm. But it, the whole thing, of course, is a highly contrived situation anyway. I mean, I have to say, I'm too old. I'm not on board with the idea that fictional narratives need to clearly set out villainous behaviour as villainous in stark, clear ways. I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not on board with that, really. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for my characters to be complex, conflicting... And challenging. That's because you are too. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think this need, this modern need, the last fifteen years, you're probably going to deny that it exists. What culture wars, Paul? There's no <laughs> culture wars. Are you? But you know, I don't have any empirical evidence. But in the recent fifteen years, this need to airbrush heroism back into characters in, in fiction, I think, is just—it's not helpful. Let him be a divisive character. And let him be complex. And let him have a shadow side. I don't think it necessarily means that we're advocating what that what he does in in in, in the story is to be copied or lauded or or because it hasn't been condemned by presenting him as a flawed, fully flawed character that somehow we're supporting those actions. I'm just I'm just not on board with any of those assumptions that people trot out these days. I'm sorry. Well, I think we already know what you thought of the acting. Which is not much. <laughs> Look, I just, it wasn't that bad. All right, okay. So, what score would you give it? Four. Right, okay. Below average, then. Look, yeah. I think Chris Pratt. I think is a likable guy. I think Jennifer Lawrence is a great actress, actor. I don't like actress. She, I thought, was just crap. Oh, Jennifer Lawrence is a good. Well, actress. I thought she was, she was terrible in Hunger Games. Is it the Hunger Games she was in? Yes. It's really rubbish in that too. Oh, okay. Just unidimensional, really. Both of them. Lawrence Fishburne is Lawrence Fishburne, as you say. He's, Lawrence he's Fishburne good. does the deep voice on the adverts, yeah. Well, I'm going to give it a seven because I enjoyed the cast and I thought they did a good job. So yeah. we disagree here. All right. What about the science? Yeah, well, I like the fact that he didn't use his space suit fart to get back to the inevitable dis- discorded rocket ship that he lost his lost his tether to. I like the fact that he threw something away from himself. I, I liked all that. I-, I love the fact, in a different kind of way, that he didn't get killed by blasting radiator furnace fumes. And I love the fact that asteroids could fly through a ship at uh, presumably quarter, third speed of light and not cause horrific vaporizing damage so 
it's it's it definitely swings around about to me on this one. It was just generally quite nice, nicely rendered. The rest of it, the whole idea of that like interstellar cruise liner looks amazing. Yeah. It's a beautifully designed bit of production stuff. So the vision of the future, I think we have to include it in science for me anyway. So a six in total. How about you, Rich? I do love the space liner things, but why are all the systems on 120, well, 90 years before they're needed? Why is the barman hanging around? You know, wouldn't he be in a storage unit? Why are all the bottles on the shelves behind? Wouldn't they like need to get them out? Why would you put them there and let them be there for 120 years? Why are there announcements on the ship hmm. for 90 years before anyone's supposed to be awake? The whole ship spins. It's a beautifully designed thing. It's got a central core and it's got these rotors on the outside where all of the... That's what I thought was quite nice, actually, yeah. It's all spinning around to give gravity, right? But why do you need gravity for 120 years of the journey when all asleep? And even if you decide you do want gravity for all that time, here's the problem. We know that it's got to accelerate to 0.5 speed of light and it's got to decelerate when it's arriving. And both of those acceleration and deceleration phases will have strong gravitational effects on board the ship. You know, when you're accelerating, you'll be pinned down toward the engine and it'll have to turn around, do the same thing the other way. If they were in those crew quarters around the edge, they would feel all that sideways, wouldn't they? So they'd all like be pulled down towards one side of the ship or the other. Indeed, if you arranged the whole journey so you were accelerating at 1G on the way out and decelerating at 1G on the way back, you wouldn't need to do all the spinny shit. And when the machine, when the ship malfunctions, there's a bit where all the gravity disappears and Aurora is in the pool and she winds up in a bubble of water in zero gravity. And she has to swim out of the bubble of water, which is a great visual effect. But if the ship was spinning, even if the power went out, it wouldn't stop spinning. It would still be spinning. Yeah. So the gravity wouldn't just switch off. Yes, you're right. So there's huge holes in the science. It's like been written by someone who has the only the barest passing acquaintance with the science. Maybe had a dinner party with somebody who told him about some of this stuff. But it so tells then, you, okay, the sloshing water in the air kind of thing, and then the, the power comes back on. Yeah, and the water, obviously, assuming that their version of gravity not working <laughs> all of a sudden is true. You know, the water just rushes back to where it was originally in the swimming pool. And she falls down with it at the same speed. Okay, fair enough. But then it just stops sloshing. Yeah. Like, there would have been tsunamis in there. Do you know what I mean? All that water splashing down, she would have been churned like anything. So I, I, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, the, the, the gravityless water moment was... Why couldn't she swim out of it? What was That was all weird. It is weird because you would have no trouble swimming out of it. It would be no different, would it, from just swimming through normal water? You don't rely on gravity because, when you're well, in the Because pool, I think you? the idea was, oh, it's moving so fast. But if it was moving so fast, she'd move with the current. Yeah, yeah. So it, she would get to where she was going to go anyway if it was moving that direction. If it was moving against it, then she'd get to the edge of it even quicker. So it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all, that blob no. of gravitilous water. Although it looked quite good. It, well, it tells you that the science here is completely in service 
of the bits of the plot that they're trying to set up, which is this whole idea. You know, what would you do if you're in a situation where you could wake somebody up, but it would kill them, but, you know, you would have companionship? Well, you have to... You, you need a bit of science to come along with on the ride with you, but you, not so much that you actually get all the details right, you know, so you get away with it. So for science, for that reason, I'll have to give it four. But, but I do like the shiny ship and the whole idea. No, well, the shiny ship is leaking into, dribbling slowly into the little meringue that is special effects. Yes, yeah. What did you score this meringue? I scored it quite high, an eight, I think. It looks fantastic, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. It's it's super shiny, it's effective. All the little details are quite cute. Like the can, the cafeteria with the machine that spits out Cheerios all over Aurora's pants. Yeah, it was all convincing, I thought. Michael Sheen's barman with no legs. It's very clever. Yeah. He just arrived from the signal handy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I'd give this an eight or maybe a nine. Yeah, wow, really nine. Well, let's call it a nine. Okay, finally, plot and all that stuff. This is all about this ethical question, from up to my mind. This movie is it's just about setting up this protracted and very difficult to resolve question about what's right or wrong to do here and whether whether he was justified, and then kind of unwinding that question by making it essential that they were there to save everybody. Seems a bit of a cop-out. So, for setting up a complicated trolleybus question, that's good. For trying to resolve it neatly in a Hollywood way, that's bad. So I'll, on balance, I'll give it a 6.5. I mean, for me, we're looking at, what, isolation. And two, I thought it was done before, like, you know, crash in the Andes, do you, do you resort to cannibalism? It's the same question, isn't it? It's, as you say, a trolleybus question. And so, one, we've got his... his his isolation is facing eight years of isolation as he wakes up. That's one thing. And two, the option to satisfy himself or, or, or to get rid of this uh, this unending isolation before death with a dubious moral choice. Uh, both of those things call for the plot device, which is, you know, Hamlet's Hamlet's uh, skull, you know, or looking into the mirror, the shaving mirror, or, or you know, taking advice from the from robot wise elder. Wise elder appearing in the skies, kind of thing, whatever you know. There wasn't that moment of contemplation. I think sci-fi does this so often. Sci-fi movies are an excuse for poor scripting. You know, I have to say, why does why does shiny why does shiny steel surfaces allow us to stop characterizing humans as humans? I just thought it was it was very one dimensional. We didn't really see into his soul at all. Are you saying before, that it's a shame that the robot barman was more human than Nick was? Yeah, you know, I didn't really see Nick as a human. We didn't get to glimpse his anguish as he made these decisions, or maybe he just didn't have any anguish. You know, just maybe he didn't care what he was doing. So well, I did find it convincing, really, and I thought that was needed to hold the the, the script up. And then, of course, you know, we get this Hollywood ending where nobody apart from the old guy dies and and we get the space walk where obviously the tether's broken and, oh, it's all okay in the end kind of thing, which was trite. I think this is one of the weaker areas. A four, I would score it. Oh, dear. So overall, then, Paul, what would you give it? <sighs> a five, I think. It's, it's, it, it's a... No, no, I'm going to say six. It is worth watching. Yeah. It is worth watching. I agree. I'm I think it is worth six. watching. I would go so far as to say it's worth a seven. Well, because it raises questions that are not all that often addressed. It doesn't resolve them, okay. but how can it? It couldn't. It could never have. But it doesn't really address them either, does it? <laughs> so that's the main problem. 
How dare you? Here's a question to address, though. The question yeah. is, what are we going to watch next week? Oh, well, we just watched Passengers, which I think is something of a recommend. A slight recommend. I'm going to give you one choice and one choice only, Richard. If that's no, okay. I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you a choice. Oh, okay. You give me a choice, Sam. Yeah. Following on the theme of films of one letter beginning with a P, I'm going to suggest Pontypool. Pontypool? Which I think is 2008. Canadian wow. film. Canadian? Wow. Sounds like it's Welsh. I, well, you know, there's some overlap there, isn't there? Because Welsh names end up in the North America, don't they? And South America. There's a Welsh-speaking community in Patagonia, I think, isn't there? Still wow. to this day. The alternative would be a film called Barbarian Sound Studio, if I pronounce that correctly. <laughs> Could you briefly surmise that? Well, I think it's to do with someone who does sound effects for, like, spaghetti Italian spaghetti horror movies, like the ones we've watched. Yeah. So it has a connection and it's interesting. But it doesn't begin with P and is one letter only, one word only. So a, a, ta- a tenuous, intangible connection, but a connection nonetheless. Great. Well, given those two very equitable choices, I'm going to have to go for the first one, Pontypool 2008. It sounds fascinating. It sounds like it's going to be some weird indie art movie about, God knows, Pontypool, about 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 seagulls on, on, <laughs> on, on, on the seashore. But let's find out, what is it about? Any ideas? Uh, I think it's about a memetic virus. And I'll leave a it memetic that. virus. Wow, sounds fascinating. So, disaster movie scenario. Yes. Great. Okay. So, join us next week for Pontypool 2008. And anything else to say, Richard, before we say goodbye? Nothing. No. It's time for the music oh, in, in three, three, two, two one. Oh, one. Thank you.